My grandmother, Mary Beth Porter Hambrick, died early Friday morning, passing peacefully in her sleep around 1 a.m. She and her wonderful caretaker, Martha, tune in to Middle Church on Sundays from her assisted living home in Georgetown, Kentucky. She was looking forward to hearing me preach this Sunday, and I am deeply grieving her loss. After telling my kids the news of her passing, ever poignant Zane remarked, well, you're going to have a hard time concentrating on writing that sermon now, aren't you, Mom? He's never lied. Except that I'm a firm believer that the text of our lives must inform our theologies. My being present to my grandmother's death, in my grief, reflection, asking questions anew about the purpose of life, in my reckoning with the transient nature of our humanity and what really matters, I am being present to the holy task of preaching, which at its best should ask those same questions too. So here I am at the bedside of death with a text about food. And here we are at the bedside of a world telling us that voting rights don't matter, billionaires should fly to space, with an ocean literally on fire and full of questions about hybrid worship and where we're gonna be in the fall. What else would you add? What's the text of your life today? Name it, bring it. God cares about it. And being honest about where you are and what you're holding and what we're holding is how we preach together. So now let's go back to that biblical test, text, that story of the fishes and the loaves of the crowd and of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Raise your hand if that's a story that you heard growing up. Type in the chat, raise your hand. I grew up in the church and this most certainly was one of the stories on repeat. But the way I learned this story needs to be re-examined. Part of being human is evolving, being open to change, growing intentional lenses with which to critique and read the world and the word. A critical liberation and intersectional read of this well-known parable teaches us new and important insights. The first being that this is not some far-fetched story about the magical multiplication of something out of nothing, but rather a story that demonstrates that the miracle was the crowd, the people, that the people had among them what was needed, actually more than what was needed. Remember, there were 12 leftover baskets. I had a seminary professor who always said, either everything in life is a miracle or nothing is. So if there is a miracle here, y'all, the miracle is that our foundation is one of abundance rather than scarcity, and that our foundation is us. When we push this story to the far-flung realm of magic, we remove the need for us to see ourselves in it. We fall short of understanding what it means to do life together. It allows us to be a little lazy, to live our lives waiting for the almighty, the powerful, the magician to show up and provide. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't powerful. God most certainly is. And, and we are the miracle. We are the everyday showing up. We are the crowd that has it. We have among us what we need to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the unhoused, to love the trans child, to teach white children critical race theory. Just another important lens we need to apply. We have among us what we need to save our planet from ecological devastation. We have among us the resources to care for and protect our communities without police. We have among us what we need. 
We are the miracles. When we look inside ourselves, go deep in our pockets and give. The second thing a critical reading of this story helps us see is who wasn't being counted. I was taught, and we literally read in the gospels that there were 5,000 men in the crowd. What's true, you all, is that there were likely more like 15,000 people. But you know who didn't count, who wasn't counted, who didn't make it in the book, in the records? The women and children. Megan McKenna suggests in her book, not counting women and children, that the ratio of women and children to adult men that day would have been about five or six to one. So the crowd was a whole lot bigger than 5,000. She also suggests that it's likely that women, not surprisingly, were the ones who would have taken care to pack provisions in baskets, provisions like bread and fish when families set out to follow Jesus. So let's get this straight. Not counted, not recorded, but had the sacks. Let's let that sink in. And let's not think that we've evolved from ignoring women and children today. Globally, women perform 76% of total hours of unpaid care work, more than three times as many as men. And care, Ai-jin Poo reminds us, is fundamental, fundamental to enabling economic activity. Isn't that ironic? By the year 2030, child care and elder care jobs will be our economy's single largest occupation. But it has never been, never been valued in our social or political discourse because women, notably women of color, do most of this work. And we're not seeing children right now because we're acting like COVID's completely over. When there is no child under the age of 12 who's even had the opportunity to get a vaccine. We relegate children to quiet corners during worship or to the way back or upstairs or behind here. And we fail to see the overqualified women all around the meeting table still today. Didn't count them, didn't see them, and yet they had it with them. When we start rereading the texts all around us, we're going to start noticing who we're not counting. We're going to start noticing what we both collectively and individually already have. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. I was four weeks postpartum. Four weeks. If you've ever given birth, remember your body. Maybe you're there right now. It's all kind of out of whack. Things are moving around. If you nursed, you've got milk just coming out whenever it wants. My good friend Robert was marrying Pete. Of course I would be in the wedding. Of course I would wear a fabulous backless dress. Of course I would have no idea how to keep the milk from coming out while being in a wedding party all day with a four week old at home and a backless dress on. But I make it through the ceremony and to the reception site. I'm so excited. I've got my trusty pump in hand and it's really time to pump. Where's an outlet? I start looking frantically all over the space. I'm asking people, no answers, no outlets. I go into the kitchen. Hi, can I please sit somewhere? I really need to plug in and pump like now. Oh, I'm so sorry. There's no outlets here. What? What do you mean? This is an event venue, right? What do you mean there's no outlets? Yeah, but it's an empty space. We brought in everything ready to go. I'm sorry, there's no outlets. I hear the bridal party beginning to be called outside the kitchen door. I'm literally going to be spraying milk all over this place while walking in front of hundreds of people. I'm thinking to myself in horror. Has anyone seen Amanda? I hear the mother of one of the grooms asking. Then a tap on my shoulder. I turn around a little horrified, but to my surprise, it was another woman, part of the kitchen staff. 
And she looks me in the eye and she quietly says, I'm pumping too. And I've got a battery operated pump. Follow me. When I tell you all that at that moment, she fed the 15,000, I am not lying. So friends, if we have all that we need, why is it still so hard? Why is it still not working? Why do we still act like there's just one pie from which to teach and learn and live and love? Why are there so many inequalities? Why did we add 118 million people who are now chronically hungry during the pandemic while global billionaires added $4 trillion to their wealth during the same pandemic? The cost to end world hunger, by the way, $330 billion is what billionaires make in one month. Why, why, why are we restricting voting rights when it seems pretty sane that every person should get to vote? Why are we so divided politically, religiously, and practically every way if we have all that we need among us? It's because we need a fundamental mindset shift. Just because we have all this among us doesn't mean we act like we know how to live. It's hard to believe that we have it, especially in a society that leads with the narrative of scarcity rather than abundance. If you say black lives matter, then that means that my life doesn't matter. If you say trans lives matter, then that means that my life doesn't matter. That's not how it works in a society based on enough. And so the third lesson I want to pull from today's parable is one that Jesus teaches quite plainly as he challenges and subverts prevailing societal norms. Denise Reynolds points out that the disciples speak in terms of money. Remember, they said to Jesus, okay, so we have 200 denarii. We'll go buy some bread for all these people to eat. Let's see how far it goes. But Jesus never mentions money. In fact, he totally disassociates himself from it. He rejects the inherent inequality of that system and chooses a more just system, the system of gift. Denise Reynolds puts that nicely. Jesus advocates the Deuteronomic codes system of the gift. The text of Deuteronomy 12 through 26 regulates human relations and sets out standards by which people should treat each other. The possibility of living in peace can only be realized when people institute reciprocal giving in all aspects of life. We're not there because we aren't even starting from the right place. In a society dominated by those who have economic and political power, we can have bread only for money. But there is another way. We can have bread with gift, with care, with intention, with sharing, with believing, with seeing each other as assets, with seeing ourselves as assets. Now, understanding the economic systems and all systems, capitalism, white supremacy, ableism, heteronormativity, Christian nationalism, the patriarchy, we could keep going. Understanding all these systems of which we are a part and our place within them is a necessary step in overcoming systemic injustice and inequality. And we've got to take that step. Let's start imagining an entire different way of orienting and sustaining our lives. One that's not based on denarii. Can we totally reject that? Jesus did. Let's orient our lives rather on gift, 
on care and community and the foundation that we have within each other enough. I was at a community day with Henry Street Settlement yesterday. It was beautiful. Hundreds of kids, very COVID safe, and somebody brings a bunch of pizzas. Now, my white colonized mindset still teeters into scarcity pretty often and starts looking nervously around counting the kids. Is there going to be enough? What are we going to do? Uh, should I wait? Of course there will be enough. Because if there isn't, don't you think somebody's going to order some more pizza? Don't you think somebody's going to pull a snack out of their purse? There is always enough. We have to constantly reorder our minds, decolonize violent ways white supremacy and capitalism have taught us to think. It is daily work for me. Where do you see yourself in this story? As having something to give or as hungry? Both are honorable and part of the way we live is believing that when we're hungry, somebody is gonna have something for us. And the reverse, that when we have something to give, we give it. And in that way, we are all hungry and gift givers at the same time. Our hunger becomes gift because it takes both to create a world where everybody is free, where everybody has enough. Mariam Kaba says it better. There will be no magical day of liberation that we do not make. There will be no magical day of liberation that we do not make. Women, men, children, non-binary, gender non-conforming people, we are all here. We brought the snacks. We have the stuff we need. Let's start seeing each other and believing this to be true. Amen.